Welcome back to the Fit for Golf podcast. In this episode, I am joined by Dr. Mark Bull. Mark has a PhD in Sport, Exercise and Rehabilitation Science from Birmingham University and is also a fully qualified PGA professional. Mark is widely recognized as one of the world's leading experts in 3D motion capture and biomechanical analysis. His main areas of interest and continued research are why players move and swing the way they do and what influences the player's swing and performance, including areas such as anatomy, physiology, neurological learning, and how areas such as our experiences, perceptions, concepts, and beliefs have a significant influence on how we swing and perform. Mark is a mentor to many golf coaches and is also a very popular consultant amongst PGA Tour and European Tour players. Just before we get started, I wanted to let you know that Fit for Golf is running a Ryder Cup sale. You can get 20% off a one-year subscription to the Fit for Golf app by going to www.fitforgolf.blog forward slash app and entering the code RC21. Current monthly or yearly subscribers can avail of the promotion by simply sending a message through the app. This promotion runs until the final shot is struck in the Ryder Cup. Now to Dr. Mark Bull. So, hey, Mike, um, good to see you. My name is Mark Ball and very much looking forward to our discussion today and I'm very excited and thank you very much for for inviting me. It's my pleasure, Mark. Thank you very much for joining me. Um, Someone I've learned quite a bit from in the last probably year and a half or two years since we first got in touch. You were someone I sought out as an expert when I was trying to learn a little bit more about biomechanics of the golf swing and how I could um, try and basically enhance the training programs that I was creating. So I thank you for that again, and I'm looking forward to hopefully learning a bit more from you today and also uh, getting some information that maybe the listeners can use to help their own game or think about maybe how they are working on their game. So what I might get you to start with, if you don't please, if you don't mind, please, Mark, is just tell us a little bit about your background and yeah. what you do in the golf world now. Yeah, I guess my background initially, Mike, it was um, an aspirational player. This is a long time ago now. So back in the kind of early 90s, late 80s, um, you know, love, I still love golf more now than I did 30 years ago. I still enjoy playing now. Uh, so very aspirational to play. And um, really for me, it was very circumstantial way about when the area I was born within England, it was kind of in the country, a long way away from anywhere, our nearest city is at least an hour away from where I was brought up. So as far as kind of coaching opportunities, they were quite minimal, but I guess in some ways that was helpful as well. Um, always massively into science, anatomy, um, kind of movement from a young age. I was um, a bit of a fidget for the for my the, our American friends. I know the word fidget, kind of always moving around and jumping around and kind of hard to sit down. And I sustained a bad kind of neck and shoulder injury um, as I kind of moved through the back end of adolescence into my 20s. So... For me, it was um, very serendipitous when I look back now that really all these um, life events in some ways kind of really kind of guided me to kind of be very curious about um, if we had the information we now have, maybe what I was exposed to 30 years ago possibly could have been avoided. So for me, it was very much um, I became my own best case study in some ways, um, my shoulder injury, my neck injury. And I was a pretty good athlete as a kid, so in, in a very kind of humble way. I was a very good mover, um, good good athlete, kind of played most sports to a good level. 
And I was always curious at why golf, which we perceive as being um, perhaps not the most kind of demanding on the on the human um, uh, body in this case, was the only one who really created pain. And it really goes back to simply how I move. So if I went, say, through any kind of physio test, Mike, as I did way back when, or any kind of um, kind of movement-based kind of challenges, I kind of passed them. Even recently, ironically, I actually had an MRI to digress slightly on my shoulder back in February. And the consultant goes, you've got a great shoulder. To which my response is, and why does it still ache? And um, yeah, and then I went to see a different physio, probably physio number 50. Uh, in the last 30 years, I, I did one of their FMS tests, and I think I got 20 out of 21. And the guy was confused. I said, I kind of passed every test. I was a pretty good gymnast, that kind of stuff. And um, so I got 20 out of 21 on the, the, the FMS testing they used. So I saw kind of two consultants in a week. This is actually only this year. And the consultant goes, based on the MRI, your shoulder's great. And the, and the physio goes, this is the highest guy I've ever seen, which quite a lot of frustration was because then why does my shoulder ache so much? And we actually managed to track it back to my wisdom teeth being taken out when I was 20, which actually is where the pain actually kind of came from. So we're very lucky when we kind of look back over the years now through some other kind of physio friends of mine, um, uh, both in England, England and in the US, we're pretty sure it goes back to my teeth being removed um badly in the in my early 20s only the bottom two taken out of the top two then it created a response in my jaw my neck that kind of migrates into my kind of shoulder and so on and so on so i was very um yeah very curious around that that really um someone that perceived himself as a pretty good athlete a good player um why did i experience the issues i experienced or what i was exposed to as, as a kind of younger player so that then kind of guided me into very much what I did now and then through kind of university I did my PhD that kind of stuff um, as I kind of moved through so then really um, what I'm very lucky and very blessed to now is um, you know hence our connections through Ted Scott I think you know Ted's a dear friend of both you and I so Ted was I think the person that kind of directly connected you and I um, and I'm very blessed now to kind of work mainly with kind of coaches trainers um, around kind of player development for me, it's kind of more on pain avoidance. That how do we avoid essentially people becoming like me? Um, it's kind of my main background. So yeah, mostly now over the last kind of twenty five years, <clears throat> excuse me, Mike, it's been really around you know player performance, you know human performance, pain avoidance, connecting into the trainers, the physios, the coaches, and um, yeah, that's kind of my, uh, my my kind of very short story. Really, so yeah, fantastic. And just just to kind of uh, make it clear for people listening. I know you kind of delve into a lot of different areas in the work you do, but you are a PGA professional golf coach also, correct? Yeah, I was, I was very aware on day one. I kind of wanted both um, backgrounds. I, I kind of It was important to me to get real credibility in, in kind of both areas, um, to be able to empathize with coaches and also then uh, through academia, um, through university and what have you, then obviously empathize and relate to researchers. So it's very important for me to kind of have both um, backgrounds for me that um, if I, for example, <clears throat> I was overseas working two weeks ago doing a presentation um, and it's a very mixed audience from academics to coaches. And I thought this is great it's because that really is my background. I can really kind of almost kind of um, kind of jump between both kind of backgrounds, you know, very much the coaching empathy, relate to the coaches from really what they've experienced as, as, as coaches, but also then go straight back to then the world of sports science, which is what my um, my background's in um, to then go straight more into kind of you know um, academic sports science research that kind of stuff. So it's important for me to kind of have both of those backgrounds to to really um, I think really connect with really my my kind of um, I say audience, but you know the, the, yeah. the kind of day job. 
So basically you have the the knowledge of the PGA professional to understand essentially the the basics of of the golf swing or or golf mechanics. You have the sports science background, which has taught you about biomechanics, anatomy, maybe mechanism of injury and things like this. And also, I guess, the real hardcore science in terms of being able to interpret research and maybe even carry out your own research pretty effectively. Yeah, which is what I do now. So I actually just finished a research project with a good friend of mine, Phil Kenyon. Um, Phil and I have just done a putting research project recently. So um, I'm I'm about to start another one, which is more around anatomy and golf, um, which we hope to start sometime this year. So absolutely that. So for me, it's kind of really... Um, it's really connecting with kind of most areas in golf, the physios, the trainers, the researchers, the academics and the coaches and the players. So that was very important to me. Fantastic. The first time I heard about you, Mark, um, it was it was the tag that you're kind of given is often one of the 3D guys that you're you're really well known for expertise in 3D analysis um, a lot of experience. And it's it's also in the name of your name of your website, the name of your social media tags. So obviously 3D is something you're heavily involved in. Can you maybe explain to people what exactly 3D analysis is? I think it's something that people don't often understand, and it's it's often not that easy to explain to someone. Um, yeah. And then maybe how it guides your coaching. Master, I think um, I think even 3D is problematic, Mike. It should be called 4D because you have to allow for time, time being the fourth dimension. So really kind of what 3D is, or to be more precise, motion capture, really allows um, – trainers such as yourself or um, consultants like myself, whatever it might be, to really look through um, through motion capture, through real-time 3D motion capture, exactly how players are kind of moving within goal. So, for example, um, the, the, the ranges that joints go through, how segments are, um, the control through segments, how they interact, how force is produced, how force is applied, um, why guys might be... Um, exposed to pain how we can increase distance so really what 3d data or motion capture provides is that real-time understanding exactly very precisely and accurately um how the player moves like i said what ranges joints go through how segments interact you know the control of that kind of human system force production speed production force application those kind of areas so really from that what it allows us then is to be a lot more refined a lot more accurate a lot more precise so and exactly um, how that player's behaving and performing, because movement is essentially a form of behavior. So how that kind of person's behaving within the goal swing, moving the goal swing. And I think on a much kind of more expansive level than might to really understand why they move that way. So even um, when we have the data that we have, for me, what's a lot more important is the story behind the data. What led the player to move that way that day to produce those values? So the values themselves, ironically, have no value. Um, but it's understanding what that player's done, whether it be today or in recent times or historically to produce those values for me is certainly why I spend most of my time so the values for me in many ways you know you actually look at what data is there to do really all data does it allows a much more informed discussion so the session is not about the information it's about what led the player to move that way that day to produce those values and just to backtrack a second Mark that's fantastic for the listeners you're measuring this 3D motion capture with a particular type of system, basically. Can you maybe just give a brief overview of what exactly it is that measures 3D, how it's set up, how it attaches on a player's body? And I think that will make it easier for people to maybe get an idea or understand you know, these values that you're going to talk about a little bit more. Absolutely right. So it's a combination of two things. So the software, I was very lucky to kind of uh, develop my own software um, probably in excess of 10 years ago now. 
So it's my own kind of software, Ball 3D. So that took a lot of thought that name, Mike, to kind of create that. <laughs> that took me hours to kind of think of that one. And um, and I used the Polhemus Viper system. So the Viper system for the hardware um, capabilities works at 960 frames per second. So, you know, hugely ridiculously fast. So for every second of um, time, it captures 960 real-time frames of data to an accuracy of less than 0.1 of a degree and 0.1 of a millimeter to a latency or delay of one millisecond. So as far as um, the, the capabilities, the functionality of the, the hardware, um, I mean, it's beyond outstanding to, to give that level of accuracy uh, with that um, minimal time delay or latency to the frame rate per second is exceptional. So really what that allows us to do is attach sensors to various kind of body segments, for example, the rib cage, the head, the, the, the pelvis, the hand, for etc. So then track in real time um, how those segments move through space and the ranges they move through um, throughout the goal scene. So we can look, I mean, highly precisely, extremely accurately now, and in literally in real time with that kind of one millisecond of, of delay or latency uh, of precisely um, how those segments move through space, how they interact, the ranges they go through. So once we can establish those um, those movement behaviors that is kind of um, the, the way that players move, it can then really give us that really um, very informed understanding of essentially areas to improve, areas to avoid, areas to kind of maybe um, expand on. And that could be, as you say, Ryan, you know, really looking at how that player best produces speed, where there may be some some kind of constraints, some kind of um, reductions in speed, for example. Um, if someone, say, got wrist pain, for example, you know, the ranges that wrist is being taken through, the loads it's being exposed to. But then on a much bigger level, what's the wrist responding to? So in essence, the, um, the wrist is simply normally responding to stuff elsewhere. So it might be the foot and ankle, it might be the pelvis, it might be the neck, which the wrist is having to adapt for because of kind of imbalances elsewhere. So we can really use that data across many areas to really kind of map out in some ways, like I said, things to avoid, things to be aware of, things to encourage and uh, really give that player, the, the support staff, the coaches, for example, that very kind of precise map on a very individual level. So what's helpful for player A could actually be not that helpful for player B. So I kind of use the, um, the, the the kind of understanding that you, know, you can't use kind of generic systems to resolve precise questions in a very precise approach to resolve a very precise question so most people come in with very precise questions so that therefore it needs a very very precise approach so you can't read generic systems to kind of or generic answers to kind of answer kind of precise questions yeah you you kind of led to one of my questions there but something i wanted to kind of ask about too is obviously with the type of system that you described there must just be an unbelievable amount of data collected for every swing so you must need uh, quite a high level of expertise and experience and also knowledge, I'm going to guess, of maybe what you're looking at as it's happening with your eyes yeah. to actually decide, well, there's, I don't know, let's say thousands of these things I could dig into, how to know where to go. Like, where do I think the relationship of, yeah. of what's happening with this person's either, say, you know, swing tendency they're not happy with, the injury they keep struggling with. And where do I actually need to dig into the data based on what I see them doing with their golf swing? Exactly. So given I don't think it captures in excess of 60,000 points of data for every swing. So it's one of my questions. It, it applies to launch monitor, to kind of force break, pressure plate, even kind of statistical programming or in the same emotion capture. Where do you start with this stuff? So what makes 
the, the consultant like myself kind of choose that value first. So it always connects back to the client's question. How can we help today? You know, it's your session. How do you want to use your time? You have this information. How would you like to use it? Uh, some pretty kind of um, standard questions I ask most people that in, it's unusual for me, Mike, in particular, that a player would ever come to a session and go, Mike, uh, Mark, what do you reckon? You know, they, they normally come with a very defined question. Uh, there's a certain movement they're trying to avoid or vice versa, trying to encourage. Um, there's a very problematic movement, for example, they're trying to move away from. They might have wrist pain or neck pain or spine pain, or they might not be particularly adaptable or they're trying to gain length. So certainly for, for me, invariably, people come with a very defined question. So therefore, how do we use the data we have? The best answer and best explore the question you have. So for me, it's one of those kind of lost questions we, we, we've kind of lost in recent times, but it's still the most valuable question in the session. How can we help today? So I kind of use so very much the client's question guides me in particular um, as far as kind of how we use information. And it really then connects back to, again, I think we've got far too um, information-based in recent years. I mean, the last thing golf needs is more information. We don't understand to anywhere near the, the, the level we need the information we currently have. So therefore, why would they do information is staggering for me. So I think um, it's almost that trade between kind of knowledge and know-how. I think we've got very knowledge dominant in recent years in education, and we've kind of slightly moved away from know-how, knowing how to use the information that you have. So for me, that's a big um, big priority in every session. Certainly a real um, um, which gets a lot of my attention every session is kind of the know-how, knowing how to use the information and make it kind of very meaningful and very relevant to that player. And so I think a lot of times when, when players are exposed to data, Mike, it can actually really de-skill them. So players can actually go through a phase of de-skilling where you take someone so far away from how they inherently see the planet to kind of fit where they conform with these expected ranges that often you see attached to kind of some 3D kind of um, systems. The challenge is that that's taken them so far away from how they see the world and actually de-skills them. So for, for me, another big thing also, which we, we have to kind of reconnect with on a much deeper level is how do we make this data meaningful? and relevant to the individual so they go i can kind of i can relate to that i can play with this and one of my favorite questions especially when i'm very lucky to work with more advanced players is kind of based on what we've based on what we've discussed and based on what we just played with could you move that way on the first of the open championship next week the player goes no then for me is there no meaningful relevance they have to again on that first tile as it was at st george's this year could you move this one the first of St. George's? And they say, yes, you know, you've got that meaningful connection. Yeah, that's fantastic. You keep uh, you keep leading into my next questions, Mark. You're nearly I'm, answering I'm them as I, have, Mike. Sorry, as, really as I have I'm them teed up. And, no, and, and, I, and I promise I, I didn't send them to him beforehand. He's He just knows exactly kind of where I'm going with this, I think. So there was there was two things that I wanted to ask. Um, I've talked to you a little bit about this in the past, um, and I kind of have my own views. I'd be really interested in hearing yours. Obviously, you're talking a lot about how a person's body moves. You're talking about collecting this different data about the swing, and you clearly record a huge amount of data, and you have lots of information. In your, say, assessment when a player meets you, is your assessment, let's say, in terms of how they can move physically all taken in from what you measure in their golf swing with the 3D, or do you use any sort of movement assessment or any type of uh, examination that way? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I mean, essentially, they kind of give me a lot of clues when they kind of walk towards me. So still two of my um, kind of more visual, um, use the word assessment, this is easy, is kind of how people walk and how people stand. 
So standing and walk and reveal as much about most things. So when you actually look at kind of the goal thing in many ways is a much more um, advanced um, uh, exploration of kind of how we stand, how we walk. So what I really observe a lot is kind of how people walk towards me. I'm very lucky. Certainly when I'm in England, my studio, you can kind of see guys 20 yards away. So when the kind of the, the players are kind of walking towards me, I kind of stand outside to greet them anyway. You kind of get an idea of their gait cycles, their kind of walking um, movements. So that really reveals a lot about where there may be some constraints and imbalances in that, in that kind of movement system, which invariably then kind of display uh, in different ways for their goal swing. For example, someone kind of drags one foot, was very kind of inactive through a certain arm, or they kind of rotate in a certain direction. That then really starts to exploit again where there may be some um, some adaptations, some constraints, kind of through that kind of wonderful gait cycle we have. And certainly how we stand in life, um, you know, that, that kind of standing frame for me is still the most influential um, anatomical of all the different systems around us we have on how we move. So a lot about certainly in transition, to give you an example of that, might the how we move in trans or to understand how someone moves in transition, just simply look at how they stand in life. Um, because you get someone say is very compressed with that kind of trail side of the rib cage or they kind of they kind of stand with their kind of pelvis forwards, that kind of, you know, in form of that kind of sway back posture. But as soon as you're exposed to huge amounts of force in transition, which is what we are, and the body will always migrate into form towards its dominant standing position. So those internal um, um, compressive pores that we have. So to give you an idea within within anatomy, we can really only make two movements in life. Despite all what's described, we can only really do two things in life, either expand and compress. My fingers, if, you, if your audience can see my fingers now, this is a form of expansion compression. Um, for example, the idea of external or lateral shoulder rotation would be expansion adduction would then be compression so all we can ever do within anatomy and it really goes into some deeper levels now like it connects back to how we kind of move and push and compress water through our system because we are 90 percent plus kind of water based so water is not compressible so every movement we make is about actually actually how we compress and move water through our bodies so when you actually look at someone and when they stand when they're exposed to huge amounts of force in transition they get deformed and pushed towards those dominant internal compressive pores that we have so if someone's very compressed through that trail side of rib cage which is not unusual in players when they get exposed to lots of force and transition they then start to see lots of say lateral spine flexion for example being an example or um, the head being pulled into clockwise rotation that kind of trail humor head being pushed forwards real common movements in transition so a lot of it for me as far as of movement let's call it assessment so we'll keep it clean for the audience today just yeah. watch, watch people stand, watch people walk. And those observations you have really reveal much about why they do what they do in the golf swing. Excellent. If you um, think that you've seen maybe some potential restrictions or limitations or whatever you want to call them with somebody walking and with somebody in terms of how they stand, and then you're also maybe seeing some things in the golf swing, do you ever, um, say, dig into other types of testing or assessment, you know, during that session where you might take the golf club out of their hand and check range of motion through a certain, you know, movement or joint or see how their coordination is in a certain movement pattern and kind of maybe see if you can, you know, link it up a little bit more? Or is that something that you'd almost, you know, get somebody else to do, you know, like a physio or, or kind of how do you? That. Yeah, so I even kind of words, I mean, when you go very precise, I mean, there is really no such thing as a restriction in anatomy. It's just an imbalance. We are adapted humans. 
rather than, say, restricted humans, because the body will always do the best it can with what it has available. So what's what's considered a disability for player A is actually then an ability for player B. So you're absolutely right there. And uh, so most of my work, if it's more conceptual, um, uh, perceptual-based, um, awareness, that's often when, you know, um, task exploration, um, you know, um, players' awareness, people's, people's perception of movement can hugely then start to influence anyway. So to give an example on this, because it's very important, when you look at, say, um, again, why players move the way they do, that you could change, they're called lower level systems or lower order systems. You could change, say, um, the skeletal system, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry, Mike, for example, you know, pretty, you know, osteopathy, for example, kind of, you know, realign, if, if you assume that the joints ever are actually not in alignment, that rarely actually has an influence on the brain more than neurological system. However, if you influence the neurological system, it almost always influences the skeletal system. So a lot of kind of movement improvements and advancements can be done just by kind of improving someone's perception, someone's expectation of movement, someone's awareness of movement, someone's concept of movement. It's called schema. So schema is the kind of history behind the concept. And even, even just to, to pull that back a little bit further, not to interrupt, like for, I think maybe a lot of people listening, that's, you know, language that might be quite complex and confusing. But to me, what you just talked about for the last, you know, 30 or 60 seconds there is also just coaching. That That's just really good coaching, I think. Yeah. Is that accurate? I mean, you actually go back to you, Mike. Now, you're a pretty good example of many things that, you know, some of our most dominant movement patterns we have, you know, breathing and walking. Who taught you how to breathe? I don't think anyone. Well, you're still here at this stage in life. So <laughs> yeah. it's done a pretty good job. And who taught you to walk? So we are kind of, um, you know, humans are gravity. Probably we're, we're um, environmentalists. We kind of adapt to our environment, that kind of stuff. So they're very important. So just to finish off that original question, right? So most of my work, it clearly becomes evident in the session that it's more that the anatomically or physiologically, they're very very different, despite obviously being very connected. Um, there's a constraint somewhere. That's when I would look at yourself, for example, um, or, you know, I'm very lucky to have a very large, long, that continuing kind of global network of, say, trainers and physios to say, look, this now needs um, proper guidance from, say, you would be a great example that we need to now figure out more anatomically um, is there a, 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 an imbalance somewhere, which is kind of making it challenging for those segments and joints to move that way. So a lot of my work within sessions would be more around, again, those real dominant movement systems essentially standing and walking and breathing being the third one now how we breathe is of such influence on how we move in performing the golf swing once i go beyond that and we've explored the more um kind of movement expectation movement perception the 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 the, the history the, the schema for example um and it's becoming evident that for example that the subtalar joints forwards or the humeral heads forwards or the the femoral heads forwards and there's a real compression through that kind of trail side of the rib cage so that's more of a kind of um, um an anatomical imbalance then i would say we need to go to you for example mike to then start to explore that so it's kind of it's like i, I call it it's like the olympic rings we all connect up but we all kind of cross over at what point though do you hand over and then take back so i think that the, the olympic ring for many reasons or the olympic sign is it's a great way of kind of showing how that kind of very um cohesive kind of support network works we all connect up but we all kind of hand over yeah trying to have a knowledge in everything but realizing if it's maybe slightly outside of your grasp or someone else is is better at it or it requires more time you you kind of pass them on to, to the expert they need and i'll tell you a funny story actually um i don't really use online 
too much. I actually have a friend of mine, very, I'm very lazy to do it for. I'm not a great fan of um, spending time looking at phones. I made, a, I made one of my only kind of Instagram messages last year of, uh, of kind of 10 things I've got wrong this year. So I thought it's probably more than 10, but it was more to kind of make the audience aware of things that I thought were helpful or actually proven unhelpful. So when you go back to research again, actually knowing what research doesn't work is actually of more value than what research does work. So then you say, look, why are you doing this stuff? Is there no value? So there is really no such thing as unhelpful research if it's used in the right way. So I made a post around 10 things that I've kind of maybe been misguided in or um, have kind of moved away from or been involved in my education. And, and the abuse I received was staggering. It was really, <laughs> I thought they've obviously missed the, 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 the kind of message that I'm trying to help people that what I thought was helping players has actually been very unhelpful. I'm just going to put my hand up and say, look, these are 10 things. I'm sure there's more yeah. that perhaps I've kind of been, um, you know, kind of misguided around this last kind of 12 months. Yeah. And it was taken, unfortunately, in a very, very bad way that um, you can't say well, this online and how can you acknowledge that? Well, it probably says more about you, whoever you are, that you've not acknowledged the errors you've made. And uh, I was very happy saying, look, it's taken me 20 years to understand I don't understand anymore. And, um, yeah, I got a bad kind of piece of feedback. So going back to that kind of response that if you don't know, just say you don't know. Yeah. Play, I think yeah. players value that. I don't know, but I, I do my best to find someone that does. I bet for any of the kind of negative feedback you got from people taking the information the wrong way too, there was probably 10 or 20 people you didn't hear from yeah. who were absolutely delighted with the yeah, information. Was like, you uh, know what I mean? But but that's just the way that uh, they took that in a helpful way. It's meant to kind of say, look, I've explored yeah. these areas and I've actually found that perhaps that in some ways the cure became the disease. Yeah. And uh, some guys thought for what it was and other guys were, were very disturbed by that you could actually acknowledge publicly things that you've got wrong, but I guess it says more about them. Yeah. I have... Um, one more follow-up question with something you mentioned a little bit earlier, Mark, and then we're going to dig into maybe club head speed. Yep. That's kind of yep. the thing that I'm obsessed with and that a lot of people, um, I suppose, come to me for help for. Uh, the, the thing I wanted to follow up with was you mentioned if you're working with a player, you might ask him a question, could you you know, make this movement on the first tee in Royal St. George's next week in the British Open? Yeah. And if not, maybe it's not the route you want to go down. What about if it's a player who's, you know, maybe looking for more of long-term progress? If they say, look, Mark, things aren't going well at the moment anyway. So I'm more concerned with how I'm playing 12 months from now or yep. 18 months from now, as opposed to like, I know I'm not winning next week anyway, kind of thing. You know, it's just, it's just not happening. Yeah. What are maybe some of the questions that need to be asked? And I understand this could be different for, you know, an 18 handicapper versus a tour player. But when is, when is the decision to be made? this movement pattern needs to change or it might be a very good idea to, to try changing this movement pattern because that can be very difficult for players to do. And we've kind of seen that some players, once they go down the path of change, it's not a case of if it goes wrong, you can just go back to what you were doing before, yeah. especially with, with exceptionally good players. I mean, that's a whole different podcast, Mike. I think you just opened up yeah. another uh, episode body two, three, four, if not five there. So just to kind of pick up on some of the big ones there, going back to the use of 3D data, I, I always explain that um, to, go and to go and perform today, get good at this, but to really evolve through 2022, we need to get better at that. So you can be very divisive with the information that if you had to go and play, say, in um, – I'm actually playing with a very good friend of mine tomorrow 
uh, uh, the club where I'm a member at. So I'm just playing socially. So for me to play well tomorrow, do this. Yeah. To really advance and evolve through 2022 now, let's explore these areas over here. So you can be very divisive with the data that we have. And I try and frame it that way that the areas to really expand on over time could be whatever, but to just to go and perform well today. So done in the right way, you really should do both, should the bad one in life. You really could do both at the same time. You could really improve today, but then certainly advance over time. And then it comes back to things like um, even the word change can be problematic. Let's look to improve how you move, not change how you move. Change can also mean regression. So let's yeah. look, how do we improve, say, Mike, for example, rather than change what Mike does? So those are some big areas I look at. And also one of my um, big philosophies of many is to – Avoid discussions in life you never have to have. So if it's done well, we should actually always avoid that situation ever happening. However, sometimes you, you, you will inherit a player who's been exposed to you know whatever for the last two, three, ten years where you do get them and they go, Mark, I'm in such a uh, such a kind of pickle now with most things. I just need a bit of guidance now. So then it comes down to um, you know prioritizing in that very kind of hierarchical way. But done in that, even I saw a player uh, – as we record this, it was a PJ at Wentworth last week. Um, and my feedback was okay to just to, to actually do eight four rounds at Wentworth and make the cup, do this, and then let's look to really kind of expand on to, to back towards kind of major championship golf again next year in 2020. Look at these areas over here. So they had a very kind of divisive but very cohesive plan. They could play with someone to win now. But they're also aware of, you know, evolution over time. So for me, with a player, I'm very blessed to be around. We should never actually get to that situation in life because if it does, that's a big failure of mine. So that would really be on me if we ever get to that kind of that kind of idea of being de-skilled again. Uh, but when you do get those guys coming in and say, Look, oh, I'm just in a mess. I need a bit of help now. Um, that's when I think good, a, a very clear map, prioritizing. Um, it's about today, but it's also about tomorrow. We, we can do both if the data is used in the right way. Yeah, that's fantastic. Because I think that can be a very hard question and a very hard balance for golfers, even when they do kind of self-examine. It's a case of, you know, I want to play well this weekend and this year, but I also know that the kind of current way that I'm playing golf yeah. isn't bringing me to the level I want yeah. to eventually get to. And that that toss-up is is quite a challenge. And certainly in my um, experience of the more advanced players, Mike, just sorry, sorry to, to jump in apologies. Yeah. Um, so the guys at that level, golf is really the issue. So when you get guys of um, PGA European Tour, that kind of level, whenever there's an issue in performance, golf is really the problem. It's normally an event in life, which is creating such disturbance around these guys. I actually had a, one of my favorite sessions, actually, um, so far this year. Again, a very, very good European Tour player. We actually didn't leave the car in the, in the car park. Um, there were so many life events around him that day. We actually sat in the car just had a chat about a few bits. And we were there for two hours. We didn't actually even hit the balls that day. So it became quite evident. Talking about what the spine does and foot and ankle and the pelvis was not the issue. Um, so when you look <laughs> at, because there were some really bad events at home he was being kind of exposed to. So it was such a distraction for him. And you, you kind of learn that with, with most players, but more with the more advanced guys. They're not all movement problems are movement problems. Most things will display as a movement problem, which is great for TV and it's great for online media. The, the lead wrist moves this way and the arm does that. I, I had another example of a player recently, you know, multiple major champion who holds in a certain way. We missed whatever, 10, 15 cuts recently. And I kind of said to the guys, but it's the same grip that made him win three majors. It's the same grip that made him miss 15 cuts. It's not the way he holds it, is it? There was just yeah. an event in life with, with this particular player. 
And um, so, yeah, not all movement problems are movement problems, but they always display as a movement issue. So I think when you look at the more advanced guys, it's really establishing what's been happening um, um, around them in life, which is possibly guiding them to kind of see the planet that way. And um, so you get guys come in some days are in such a mess or their perception is in such a mess. It can be resolved with within a coffee and a chat. Then you get some, I had a guy come in recently, again, another major champion. I say recently, this is now a year and a half ago, sorry. COVID's made me think that things are recent still because of the, the, the kind of uh, the, the lockdowns we've been exposed to. Um, the perception is on Canberra, he kind of views beauty for this guy. So if you ask kind of most of the contemporaries, they say this guy possibly could be one of the best movers on the PGA Tour. When I actually looked at the data, possibly one of the, again, defining good or bad data is a different podcast. That's one for a different day. But to keep it easy, probably some of the worst data I've ever seen of a player at that level. So the perception was moves great, looks great on camera. This guy must be good. Um, he needed, we well, in the end needed days and days of help. Um, some guys come in Sundays when they think the world is just about to finish, and it can often take a coffee and ten balls just because of where they're at on the planet. Yeah, that's fantastic. Definitely, um, we won't get into it now, but the difference between what we can see on camera versus what's measured with three D yeah. is something that I find fascinating. That's why I'm going to try and get to you for a session when you're back in the US too. And uh, we're all being well two weeks time, I hope. Fingers crossed. So uh, yeah, two so weeks. That, that'll be very interesting. Moving on to Clubhead Speed, Mark. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure that there's been maybe more players than there had been in the past coming to you to try and basically find out how they can generate more swing speed. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you've learned from 3D data, such as commonalities that tend to jump out in players that are high speed, maybe certain 3D metrics that are very commonly seen in high speed players? Or is it more a case of players develop speed in lots of different ways and you know there's no real prescription that can be generalized? It kind of it should be kind of D, yes to all of the above, Mike, in a good way. Yeah. But again, we we'll keep it pretty light today. But the answer is to that question massively yes, especially the last comment that every player produces speed and applies speed very differently based on actually the shape of their frame. They're called helixes. So the player's helical structures, the spiral structures we have, um, hugely influence how that person best produces force based on again just their kind of their segment shape. But that's one for maybe a different day. Um, keeping it kind of very light today um, for the audience, you're absolutely right that through the information that we have now, um, there are threads that when you look at, there's always exceptions. I mean, to give you an example, um, Usain Bolt has some of the lowest ground reaction force data collected of that level of sprinter, but he's still pretty quick. <laughs> so there's always these exceptions that when you get someone like Bolt who produces very low ground reaction force data when compared to, say, his, uh, his, his peers within, say, the Olympics. Um, you get these guys that are just, they're exceptions for a reason, Mike, because they're exceptional. And here's something else that plays into that too, probably with the very different, you know, limb length proportions and things yeah. like that. So yeah. there's a lot of other reasons as why. So when you go into the very, again, you know, precise questions can't be answered by generic approaches again, that approach. But to answer your question yet, yeah, I mean, there's certain threads through um, to maybe give you two examples, just to kind of give you some, some examples tonight. Um, Typically, how the pelvis moves, especially how the pelvis elevates and moves up through impact, is a real um, predictor of really how well someone is applying vertical uh, or downforce, depending on what reference system kind of one wishes to use. So, when we look at more the movement kinematics or the movement observations, 
really how well that pelvis starts to elevate and move up as it rotates is a big predictor of guys that are very good at really applying that vertical downforce, especially kind of through that lead foot and ankle into the lead hip would be one. Um, and then also to add on to that, Mike, the rate, how in essence, how quickly it elevates. So it's not just how much the pelvis moves up, it's also at what point in time it moves up. And then to be very precise, how quickly the rate of elevation becomes very, very valuable. Uh, another one could be, for example, the kind of ribcage lead arm uh, interaction in transition. So it's called um, horizontal adduction for those that are more familiar with kind of more the, the anatomical movements, the, the ability for the ribcage to rotate um, anti-clockwise or counterclockwise for the American audience, sorry, for the ribcage to rotate counterclockwise into that lead arm in transition. So that creates that adduction, that compression, that eccentric load of all those tissues that run around it, the shoulder, the scap into that ribcage. Yeah. Again, that can also be another very powerful um, movement that can then really connect in the club speed. So when we look at, say, again, almost that, that wonderful kind of circular discussion that we're, we're having today, you go back to um, the 3D data again. When we look at, say, um, pain and distance, you know, two very common questions I get exposed to. You can spend a lifetime to never actually understand pain. Right? Now you can spend a lifetime to actually never understand pain, but distance possibly in a very non-dismissive way is probably the easiest one to ever um, gain in the sessions. When you actually understand kind of how speed is produced in golf, um, it's it's probably one of the more kind of again in a very non-dismissive way easier areas to look at. For example, things like how the pelvis moves, how that lead arm ribcage interact, certain movements the wrist makes, <clears throat> how the kind of the the the, 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 the ribcage and the kind of lumbar spine and pelvis interact. So um, we're very fortunate, but it's probably still one of the best uses, or certainly one of the more um, frequently used uses of the data, kind of gain in length. So <clears throat> there's these very common threads now when you look at the more um, the, the more explosive, the more powerful players compared to say, um, um, you know, less powerful kind of more recreational players. Um, it can be very, um, very clean and quite evident. Powerful players invariably produce these kind of movements. Yeah. Or certainly display some of these kind of movements. <clears throat> and then the less powerful players would display these movements over here. So from a, from a very kind of, um, yeah, clean discussion. Um, we're, we're very lucky through the information that we've kind of acquired over the last 20 years, certainly in my case, um, to really locate why guys are very powerful. Yeah, that's brilliant. I don't want to to kind of reduce this down to something that's not quite touching on the, the data that you're talking about. But again, for people listening who mightn't have, you know, a huge knowledge or understanding of maybe golf swing or golf swing terms, so if we take the first one of the pelvis elevation through impact, so how much and how fast the pelvis rises through impact, is it a case of that for this uh, elevation to happen later in the swing? It's probably not something that we're going to see done very well by players who tend to rise early in transition and maybe display early extension, which is a, a term that a lot of people will be familiar with. Yeah. Would that um, kind of impressive movement, say, that we're looking for, be more from players who tend to have maybe a pelvis lowering in early transition so that then they have almost the the ability to extend up harder and faster later towards impact. Yeah, just to kind of, again, expand on those three points because they're brilliant, by the way. Um, 
this is about the pelvis moving upwards, not towards the ball. So that's kind of pelvis thrust. So as I look at the camera, my pelvis is thrusting towards. Well, this is the pelvis elevating and moving upwards. So on the, for those that are kind of more where you know 3D, they're kind of X, Y, Z, the Cartesian plane, yeah. moving up vertically. So what it isn't is thrusting or hip extension, is it's more often kind of informally known within golf. It's more the pelvis moving upwards. Going back to the other two points, you make absolutely right that when you look at most established, most accomplished, powerful players, had that the origin, the three-dimensional middle of the pelvis, how that kind of moves downwards in transition. And typically, in the very, very powerful guys, regardless of kind of gender, female, male, regardless, that when the pelvis starts to then ascend and move upwards, is typically when that lead arm's about kind of horizontal um, uh, in downswing. So there's these, we look at the timing then, of invariably when the lead arms around about horizontal and downswing is invariably when that pelvis then starts to move upwards and elevate. So that, that's why I think you can be quite precise. Um, there's a big difference in the pelvis thrusting forwards to the pelvis moving upwards. That's why, you know, it's called the rate of elevation rather than the kind of rate of thrust. And um, you're right. So when we look at the pelvis moving down, to be very precise, what it isn't is the lead side moving down that from a pain uh, observation can be very problematic when it's the, the trail side elevates it, the lead side moves downwards. That can create some real um, very um, unhelpful, very problematic movements around said the kind of low right side of the spine. So it's more the origin, the middle of the pelvis moving downwards in transition. And then invariably, Mike, um, yeah, the pelvis starts to elevate invariably when that lead arm's about parallel or horizontal and downswing. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. I think that kind of visual and explanation will help some of the listeners. And then the other one you were talking about, the lead arm horizontal horizontal adduction in transition. So if you kind of go back to you said that that's in simple terms, maybe the chest rotating into the lead arm in transition. To me, that almost seems as nearly the opposite of what the maybe you know higher handicap might do with the over the top move yeah where the lead arm comes further away from the chest and now they've kind of lost that ability to I suppose the easy way of thinking about it is when you rotate your chest into your lead arm that arm is going to be coming off your chest maybe a little bit later in the downswing yeah. compared to the over the top guy so then your release of power is actually coming closer to impact rather than that power from your, your arm segment being wasted very early in transition. Absolutely. So you look, at state, you look at kind of the, the elasticity of movement, or to be more precise, rebound, as it's more kind of uh, known, is that to get that wonderful elasticity, that rebound movement, um, what's, it's very different from the arm, say, compressing onto the rib cage to, as you rightly said, the rib cage rotating into that lead arm. That creates that wonderful elastic recoil, um, or stretch, stretch across cycle, the rear body. stretch across the rear shoulder upper back kind of lash yeah. area yeah kind of the stretch shortening cycles is kind of more known within snc or kind of elastic recall within say movement or there's actually rebound is there's the, the more kind of um, accurate definition that wonderful kind of rebound movement you have um so then it comes down to almost going back to 3d again the value itself isn't of that much value is how the player moved to produce that value. a bit like speed in some ways speed in some ways isn't that important but how the player moved to produce that speed is vital so actually how the player moves to create that wonderful kind of elasticity that elastic recoil that rebound that stretch shortening cycle is hugely important so having the um the both the uh 
the, the, the awareness, the neurological perception, alongside the anatomical ability. So con- connecting that to your word now to move that rib cage independently, anti or counterclockwise into that lead arm um, can be very advantageous from a, from a, um, a distance uh, or improving club head speed. Yeah, no, that's that's fantastic. As as you're talking about those two points, the swing that I keep seeing in my head is Rory McIlroy, <laughs> swing and driver. That's uh, that's what I'm envisioning as a. Well, Rory's good at most things. Two. He doesn't do much. Um, yeah, yeah. Average. He's uh, he's very good at most things, Rory. So I think Rory will win when Rory wants to win again. That's my. I've, I've been asked that a few times lately. I, when you ask about Rory, it's uh, and I never met Rory by the way. Um, I think Rory will win when Rory wants to win again. Is my kind of yeah. uh, my view on him. I, I hope so. Um, Mark, I'm going to just leave you with one more question, if that's okay. Of course. And this is actually basically the same question that I first got in touch with you um, about a year and a half ago is based on your knowledge of 3D data and the golf swing and helping players gain club head speed, what types of training exercises, in your opinion, might make the most, self, might make the most <clears throat> sense for golfers to try and get more powerful at if we take a golf club out of their hands like if, if we're considering not not hitting balls or swinging as one of them yeah i think um you know, i think it really goes into kind of your area myra so it goes back to that lovely hopefully keys connection there so i think in essence learn to stand well learn to walk well learn to breathe well would be the kind of priority number one but i think over time the main objective that we're looking at when we're looking at the more um, as you said the more advanced the more accomplished players is to become a lot more elastic in their movement that wonderful kind of um, again, um, that rebound, that wonderful explosive elasticity of movement. So anything we can do training-wise, so that really goes into more, again, excuse me, looking at someone's training history. So the very, almost the other end of that scale, so kind of high-level plyometrics, for example. So you've almost got the kind of movement scale there of can you stand well and breathe, um, which for many is a challenge, to then the other end of that scale and the great way, almost the aspirational movements. This is where we aspire to be. You know, very much that kind of high-end, kind of plyometric, very explosive, fast elasticity of movement um, is typically what the very um, advanced players do very well. There's always the exception which makes it fun. So everyone can go, well, what about X? And for sure, that applies to most things in life. It's a bit like Keith Richards. Keith Richards, because Lifty was 100 years of age, and he drinks every day and smokes. So he does, does everything that medical science says is bad for you, and I hope he does live to 100 he'll probably live to whatever age because uh, he just probably, he chose his parents well. And yeah. um, you've always got those exceptions, but typically, yeah, I think the aspiration for all of us is that the, the kind of more um, high-end plyometric type of movement, um, that rebound, that recoil, because um, that then is, so those, is the association back then to the values you see within the goal swing from the 3D observation. When we look at those movement associations, those training associations, really what we're trying to aspire um, and our aspiration within our golf swing, and I call them aspirational movements, by the way. The aspiration of training is to get to that level of kind of high-level plyometrics. But again, it then goes back to that kind of lovely conflict. Unless you can stand well and breathe and move well, then should you do plyometrics? No, but also the aspiration is to kind of get to that stage. So you need, and you need to learn them at, at some stage. If you're, if you're waiting to be perfect with your standing and breathing and walking, you, you might never train. And that, that then goes back again to, like you said, I mean, you've got a guy who says, Mark, I've got to compete next week. Give me something to do. Exactly. So, you know, that, that's that. We, we, we have this slightly kind of romantic view of the planet some days. 
that's always my internal conflict that um, unless you can stand well and breathe well and walk well, you shouldn't advance on for that. But the reality is these guys have got maybe two events to keep their card. They've got a, they've got um, they only play in once a month with their mates. We're not really into that stuff. So you look at that, you know, what's that one thing we can all do that really gives us that kind of um, the biggest value? It might be, you know, what, just kind of some some human squat patterns again, just to kind of yeah. just to kind of um, uh, revisit and explore um, just really good kind of squat human squats again. Um, might be the most advantageous way of spending your time. You've only got twenty minutes a week to play with for, for the person at that time. Right. And just to just to clarify on the the kind of term that you use to describe some of the you know exercise modalities that you think might be very effective when you talked about the high-end you know elastic plyometric type moves just for the people listening they tend to be things that if anyone was watching the olympics uh we see people on the track or on the field doing so things like jumping bounding skipping lots of different yep. type of rotational sort of like throwing and slinging motions things like that and that's kind of yes. why jumping and th- jumping and throwing and slamming med balls, you know, pretty light, but in a variety of different planes and patterns and at high speed is is why I try and get so many golfers to to work those into their training regimen, basically. Yeah, I mean, you could, you could even go from kind of standing, walking, throwing, jumping. That really is the kind of the, the evolution of the kind of human movement in many ways. Uh, but you're absolutely right that, I mean, track and field has been so advanced, certainly with use of sports science for many years. I mean, so when you look at the, the, the good field athletes in particular, and even um, you know distance runners, that wonderful kind of mechanical spring, that wonderful elastic spring of running twenty, obviously six miles or so, um, tracking. I think we could all learn from track and field across many areas. So yeah. I love Usain Bolt for many reasons. He's my favourite athlete. I just think Bolt was just the best. So have you um, seen Valerie Allman, the US female discus thrower who won the Olympics? I, no. I shamefully know. I haven't only through. So she's her her throwing the discus and Rory McIlroy swinging the driver are my two favorite sporting actions in the world. Obviously, you're familiar with with Rory swinging driver, but I'll send you a few clips of Valerie Allman uh, training. She's unbelievable to watch training her her power and her movement. And um, yeah, she she won the Olympics literally with her first throw in the final. She's yeah. unbelievable. So, and that's that's kind of the, what we're talking about, like that real elastic, like around type movement. My favorite athletes, and for me, I think you know, martial artists and dancers are my two favorite movers. So, Capoeira yeah. was my kind of big love as a child. So, BJJ's is kind of more known these days, which is kind of dance and martial arts. So you look at kind of dancers and, and martial artists, I mean, again, as aspirations to kind of aspire to move like those, for me, are still two of the best kind of uh, um, examples we can have. So very impressive. Yeah. Mark, that's excellent. Thank you very much for your time. Can you let the listeners know where they can find out more about your work? Yeah, I mean, just online, really. So um, my website address is ball3d.net, so www ball3d.net uh, on Instagram and on Twitter. So I think it's Mark, no, Ball3D Academy, sorry, is my Instagram and Twitter name. And um, yeah, so typically if you kind of look on social media on the website, hopefully you can kind of locate me somewhere via those uh, those areas, those platforms. Fantastic. Mark, thank you very much again for your time. And I will be in touch soon to try and organize a 3D session with you. And maybe I can do a little report of it for the listeners. It's something they might be interested in. Uh, to hear you break down what I'm doing well and more importantly, probably not so well. <laughs> um, Mike, it's been an absolute pleasure to see you. So always spending time with you is an absolute delight. So let's hope we can do it soon. Yep. Thank you very much, Mark.
chat soon. My pleasure. Thank Bye-bye. you, Mike. Thanks again.